Welcome to the Humanizing Works Show. In today's episode, Richard and I chat with Vivian Rhodes, president of the Women's Health Business Unit at Pharmavite, the maker of nature-made vitamins and many other vitamins and supplements. Vivian has a long and successful career in the consumer packaged goods industry, with stints at Mars and PepsiCo, as well as doing consulting for several years with startups in that space. I first met Vivian at one of our public courses, a leading organizational transformation class in San Diego about four years ago. At the time, Vivian had just accepted a new role at Pharmavite as their vice president of innovation, where she had a mandate to take Pharmavite from an established leader in more traditional vitamins and supplements to being an innovation leader in that space. In the four years since that workshop, Richard and I have worked with Vivian and her teams and several others at Pharmavite, and it's been a pleasure to watch her lead with heart and purpose, as well as to see her absolutely knock it out of the park with her mandate to bring innovation into the company. Our conversation is wide-ranging, covering tons of great topics. In fact, as I edited the episode, I kept a list of my favorite points, and there are 20 of them. I'm actually going to read them off real quick because I think it'll give you an, an idea of what to expect in this episode. So, first, we talk about how she first discovered Agile and why that turned out to be really important in her new position leading innovation. Second, she had a starting hypothesis for what roles were important to have on that first innovation team at Pharmavite, and we talk about how that went. We talk about how she approached hiring for what she describes as unicorns that are comfortable with loose role definitions and looking for purpose in their work beyond personal achievement. How she introduced Agile to a CPG company where it had never been used while not being too preachy about it. The results of her team effort, including accelerating from no new innovation in over a year to 25 innovations per year, and decreasing the lead time from an average of about 21 months between new products to their current lead time of four to nine months. How using a human-centric design thinking approach and a balanced innovation portfolio increased not only that speed and quantity of innovation, but the quality of it as well. Uh, leading to innovation representing a huge part of Pharmavite's growth, 39%, even as the pandemic created a massive demand for their traditional vitamins and supplements. How she worked to reframe failure as learning, both for the organization and for individuals. How her innovation team balanced the need for transparency in what they were testing and learning with the risk of overwhelming the rest of the business with what could feel to an outsider of the team like lots of chaotic churn. We talk about the benefits she saw from bringing a designer into the team from the very beginning, leading to more T-shaped team members, which we discuss in the episode, and eventually everyone on the team, regardless of their role, doing things like conducting user interviews in consumer homes, testing ideas on the website, and building and testing what she called protocepts, which was a new concept to us, so we also learned what a protocept is. Vivian shares how a cross-functional team that included both consumer insights and science and technology was the right match to lead to breakthrough innovations that serve Pharmavite's purpose, purpose to bring the gift of health to life. How her CPG innovation teams are similar and how they might differ from traditional software scrum teams. We discuss how she balances the benefit of autonomous teams with the need to collaborate and share information across those teams. We then go into how Vivian has grown as a leader, including how mindfulness practice, focusing on abundance, sharing vulnerability, and her efforts at mentoring and developing have been life-changing for her and her team. We touch on how the leadership circle model provided deep insights for her on how to approach her new role as she transitioned from vice president of innovation to president of the Women's Health Business Unit. We discuss the importance of starting that new role with building relationships, learning the existing culture, and co-creating a vision for the organization when she took on that role, versus the all-too-common approach of coming in on day one and telling everybody the new way things are going to be. We talked about what she hoped work will look like a generation from now. She shares a great technique she used to facilitate an inclusive, focused conversation with that new team in the first week about what was changing, how people were feeling about it, what they needed from her, and what everyone's expectations were as she stepped into the new role. She also shares her experience growing up outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil, in a family of entrepreneurs, and how at the time she felt like there was something that needed to be fixed about her presence, her ambition, and her drive to achieve, and how working with an exemplary leader later in her career became the model for how she could make other people around her better by shifting that view of herself. 
and how on the first day of the new job in San Diego, she experienced an almost cosmic full circle experience that helped her reflect on everything that's happened over the last four years. Richard and I are super grateful for Vivian's leadership and generosity in sharing these experiences and what she's learned, and we hope you'll get as much out of the conversation as we did. We would love it if you're interested in hearing more conversations like these, as well as the key concepts that Richard and I are learning and finding helpful to our clients. If you would subscribe to the show, rate it in your podcast app, and share it with others. Okay, on to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Vivian, welcome to the Humanizing Work Show. Thank you. You've done some impressive things applying agile software development way outside of software in the CPG, consumer product goods space. Um, tell us about how that happened. When working with entrepreneurs, I needed to get a lot done in a very short time frame because budgets were different, right? So I was doing marketing strategy and innovation strategy. And so I came across the concept of sprints from the Google Ventures book, Sprint, and really got fascinated with that idea of a kind of a structured, focused team approach. And went into really a spiral of learning about lean startup, Scrum, what design thinking is, and started kind of that exploration, but really knew there was something about it, which is the power of small teams against a very focused goal and people who care about the purpose. So I started exploring that. And when I started interviewing actually for, for Pharmavide and heard from our CEO the purpose of transforming and the need to transform innovation, and tapped into me for that, I knew that I needed to draw upon my corporate experience with PepsiCo and Mars. But a lot of the five years that I spent working with entrepreneurs in designing something that was small, nimble, based on test and learn. So I had a conviction of that, but didn't quite know what it was. So um, I got a hold of a book, Age of Agile, and started learning a lot about it, but didn't know how to get started. Like, okay, who do I select to be in that team? Like, how do I go about the process to start? So I went and, and Googled like, Agile training <laughs> near me um, and came across the course that Peter was teaching Certified Agile Leadership. And it was a week and a half away. And I'm like, you know, I, I need to go talk to someone. That seems like good investment for me to take the train down there and learn. And through that training, I found a connection with a lot of the concepts that I've been personally developing about leadership, about purpose-driven organization, human-driven organization, gave me case studies right? It still didn't give me like who should be on your team, <laughs> but gave me at least a lot of kind of the big vision how to do it. And I also went to a Lean Startup Conference, which gave me other methods about how do you test and learn and started that exploration. But the really funny thing is that when I was coming back from the Lean Startup Conference, so I think I, I met you in September and it was the conference was in November. And I came back, met my brother, who was coming from an IT conference, is in IT, and met at LAX, and he was gonna spend a couple of days here. And I said, like, you won't believe. I've just discovered this thing, and you won't believe it comes from software. It's agile. He said, Vivian, I've been a product owner for the last seven years of my life. And I'm like, why did I never talk about this, right? And it was really funny, but I understood, you know, when I understood the principles and the values of Agile, I'm like, you know what, let's, let's take a stab at that. You mentioned hiring as a challenge in there, figuring out the composition of your teams. How did you come to think about that as you experimented with what makes the right Agile team in this space? I started with thinking about a startup 
and the startups that I work with, like who do you have? Usually you start, there's a founder, there's someone who has a vision, and then the first hire is an operations person. Okay, I need an operations person. <laughs> what else do I need? Um, I do need a marketer that's gonna set some of the vision strategy. We're a human-centric, consumer-centric organization. I do need consumer insights into it. Science is huge from a product development and science. Okay, I need a scientist in that. And I would say the biggest hypothesis that came a lot from design thinking is bringing a designer to the very beginning of the discovery of innovation. So that was the wild card of the team. But I knew that we had to have a cross-functional team that could operate independently from the machine and could still know enough to get stuff done. That was the beginning of the structure and that was the very first team. And as we expanded into other teams, the makeup could change a little bit depending on the purpose and the vision that you had. What was challenging about being this island of an agile way of working in the middle of a larger organization that doesn't work that way? I think the hardest thing, first of all, is in recruiting. The type of profile and people that you need is different. The roles and responsibilities are not very well defined on purpose. There's overlap between people. You have to build some of that redundancy within the team. And I was looking for unicorns. And I didn't know I was looking for that, but I start seeing a pattern of people who came to the realization in life that there's more than achievement. There's a sense of discovery, a personal aha moment that happened that made me feel, I want to work with purpose. I want to work in a team that I care about and they care about me. I don't want just a title. I don't want just progression. I want to feel great about what I'm doing. And this is difficult to put in a job description that that's where you look for. And certainly it's like, yeah, this person has the qualification, but I haven't seen that, that thing. So recruiting is, is that, and I would say that I take longer to recruit than most. If you put that in the job description, you're not likely to find somebody who reads that and says, no, nah, I don't want purpose in my work. That's not for me. Exactly. <laughs> so it's yeah. really easier for people to say yes to. Say to. yes, exactly. I want to work in health <laughs> well, and wellness. Of course I want that. It's great, you know, and a team that cares, sure. But it's through the behaviors and through conversation. I, I like the, the level questions. And, and we do complete integration of the team as part of the recruitment process, which is also another one, especially nowadays in this market that exists the speed of recruitment is very important. So you don't wanna have like rounds and rounds and rounds, but at the same time, I do want to make sure that the people meet the team and the team get to meet the person. So that's another thing. But the major part is, it's a lot of technicalities that we come across in Agile, like what's a backlog? <laughs> what's a sprint? What's a sprint review and a retrospective when the organization doesn't have the language? Around it, it can sound cultish. And so how do you make sure that you are approachable? It's the organ rejection type of situation, right? You want to be different, but you don't want to be rejected for it. So building those bridges are difficult. But once you start seeing results, and there are different ways of achieving results, right? We have one way of achieving. Other teams have different ways of achieving. What can we learn from each other? Great, but I'm not trying to preach to anybody that that's the only way of working. So that's kind of a fine line of being proud about what you do and the results and how you're achieving, but not sounding preachy and know it all type of situation. So that's challenging because I'm really proud and passionate, but I don't want to be perceived as being the one that has the answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what was your charter? What was your mandate when you were brought into PharmaVite? How did it go? Where are you at right now with that? Yes, PharmaVite and NatureMade is the big legacy brand in the industry. You know, NatureMade was one of the ones, you know, that's celebrating now 51 years, but really it started the beginning of supplementation. And it has had great success over the years, but with that, it created, I would say, a steady state culture. And 
when Jeff came about, it's like grounding on purpose and grounding in values. Part of the observation is that we haven't been able to innovate. There were some innovation initiatives, but often they would hit the market and fail right away. And there was a lot of focus on renovation, just you know, making sure the business is steady, but in a category where really innovation is the name of the game, you have to change. So the need for change was there. So what I had to do is to figure out how we're gonna innovate to drive growth for, for the organization, right? The, the goal is growth. So when looking at that, I found that there were a lot of well-intentioned people that tried to do innovation. It was, you know, great talent that tried to do it. But what I saw is that the systems of work were not there. Systems of work and organizing people and how to make decisions, those are like super, super important. And so when I came here, an important part of it all was to identify the team, build the culture of the team, but also build the governance that would propel transformation and not just consumer test results using traditional methods, but rather using a test and learn approach. Real people, real consumers, people who spend time in their homes that we would build the intuition to do. You know, at the time that I arrived here, there was a national sales meeting. So the national sales meeting happens around July. And that's when we announced innovation. And I started second week of July, four years ago, two weeks after national sales meeting, and no innovation was announced in that sales meeting. So that need to change. But I started here in 2018, and I remember my charter was, okay, you're gonna focus on 2021 and beyond. And I said, great, what's the pipeline of 1920? Like, we, we have none. I'm like, well, I'm not gonna hold any job <laughs> if I start working three <laughs> years from now and we have none. So literally in four months, we dug at, you know, things that R&D was working on, things that we just could put together. And in that year, just you know, five months later, we launched four pieces of innovation. And then from zero, one to four, then we picked up the pace. Now we're in the 25 range per year. At the time I arrived, 21 months were like from idea to shelf. And by the time you get to shelf, the category has changed. Mm -hmm. The things were great ideas, except that you were late. So we cut that off significantly. The shortest that we did, we actually launched innovation four months. Usually it's nine months is the time, but then we know when we need to pull, we can. We have the confidence that we can do it. You've talked about this astounding increase in the quantity of innovation that you're able to produce now. Tell us about how the quality of innovation has changed during that time. Using a human-centric design and design thinking has been critical for us to understand really the needs and using jobs to be done as a framework for that, to really understand what consumers are going through, the progress they are trying to make, and what are all the substitutes or the workarounds. This has been critical for us to understand and develop more holistic innovation rather than just, you know, what's the next vitamin D what we also realized is that winning in the marketplace in innovation is about taking a portfolio approach. You don't know exactly how an innovation is going to perform until you hit the market. So how do you take a portfolio approach? We need to have the holistic, amazing, that we're proud that it's first to market, but we also need the next strength of vitamin D because them together will balance out it's creating your optionalities. And for the ones that do well, then you build next year, right? But you are constantly learning in the market. What I'm super proud is that in the last year, innovation was responsible for 39% of the growth of Pharmavite. In times of incredible growth behind the pandemic, COVID and the pandemic made people think about health differently and proactive health is super important. So the supplement industry has experienced really good growth. When you look at that and you're able to still contribute, it's not only the pandemic buy, it's really innovation that drove the growth. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm curious how the perception of 
failure or falsification of a hypothesis has changed as you've increased the frequency and decreased the cycle time on innovation? So what we learn by speeding things up is that there are certain activities that absolutely must happen. We will never compromise in quality and safety. However, there are a lot of other things that are questionable where you need it. Looking into a tool that I absolutely love is what's the biggest unknown from known to unknown and high impact to low impact and really look into those things that you do not know and cause the biggest impact. This transformed the organization. One, from a discovery of innovation, which is where Incubate and my team have focused on, it required what I say a reprogramming of our brains because it's not complicated. So you don't start with a situational analysis. You're going to jump right away in that highest risk hypothesis. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. So everybody that joined the team, that's the biggest thing that I tell in interviews and I try to probe in interview. Are you able of letting go? Letting go on what made you successful until today. But also from a commercialization team, once the business canvas is complete, the people who are taking it to market, we started doing an exercise of the highest risk hypothesis and questioning parts of the timeline to see are they really needed or things that need to be reframed. So it's reframing from failure to learning and ensuring that every opportunity that you have to reinforce that message and send signals to the organization and how important that learning is, is what matters. So we spend quite a bit of time and energy to make sure that within our leaders, when they're talking about examples of things that have failed, are how important and how now, you know, hindsight 2020, you could have done differently, but you know, that was the right action at the time. That's really important to send that message to the organization. But ultimately, I do think that failure is a reframe that each person needs to get used to. Yeah, there might be some cases that it was something that was in your control and you chose something that didn't go the way you wanted and be able to live with that. Because I find that sometimes it's not even the organization, it's the person. Can the person live with that discomfort? So what I'm hearing is that before you came here, when we were on this kind of 21, 24 month cycle from we've got an idea to it hits the market, that the organization built out these structures, these processes, like the timeline for how we take an idea to market. And they were probably built with a goal of not innovate, renovate. And so you have these blocks of time that have been built in to really allow for safety, stability, everything to be predictable as much as possible. And people are really used to going step one is this, then step two is that, then step three, et cetera, all the way till we hit market. But what I'm hearing you say is that a big part of the transformation was recognizing that step one might not be where the risk is. And so we need to not worry about step one right now. We're going to go all the way to step seven because that's where there might be some risk or some uncertainty. And let's just do that piece because we might get into step seven and realize, oh, our hypothesis is wrong. People don't want that or this is the wrong way to sell it or to market it or to package it or whatever that thing is. And that was really uncomfortable for an organization that was very used to going one thing at a time in order. And so a big part of it was getting comfortable with saying, we're going to start in the middle because that's where the risk is. And that allowed you to learn much faster and to start shrinking that timeline. Yeah. And it's interesting because we kill so many ideas really early on, sometimes there's no visibility of the organization on how many things we don't do. Mm. And oh, one day there was some sort of learning shared and people are like, we don't kill ideas. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, we don't, we don't kill it. And I realized that we're not giving visibility to all the things that got killed completely before we hit the point in which a lot of the organization sees a project. By the time that they see the project, we have desirability validated, feasibility, viability. We're looking for that sweet spot. And until we hit that, there's no need to involve and distract the organization. And some subject matter experts help us throughout the way, filling in expertise. But really, this combination is hard to get. And I thought it was very funny. And like, how can we be more purposeful about showing actually, we've done kind of been at the clean out. 
um, yeah. based on the hypothesis that we learned. It's the risk of being on an island, is that nobody else sees what goes on in the island. And so the way that things work on this island don't spread out, because you're intentionally building some walls around it so that you can do that type of work and move quickly within the bubble of your teams. Now the other teams don't see what's going on in the bubble, and so the ideas don't spread. It's a hard balance there. It is really, and what I realize is that in this team, there's so many pivots. Pivots are daily. You find an information and you have to rethink. It's a balance on how much transparency you give. Because if you give transparency and you pivot, first of all, it's like, oh, but I thought that that's what you were doing. And I'm like, no, now we're doing this. For people who are not used to that, it feels like you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're just changing <laughs> constantly what you're doing. And so the balance of giving transparency, but also inspiring confidence in the organization that you know what you're doing is a very tricky one. And I don't know that we have it right. We have built ways that we send out to the organization. Our sprints right now vary between one group, which is unlearning, one group has two week sprints, the other pod has a three week sprint. But every three weeks, we send to the organization our backlog. Okay, these are the ideas in the hopper with traffic light or should you expect? <laughs> how ready are they? You know, how close are they to finding that sweet spot between desirability, viability, and feasibility? So we do that. It's, it's sometimes confusing, but sometimes you have to accept that there is ambiguity in there, and, but you have to have some visibility to people not too much. When you were talking about the team structure, you mentioned that bringing design in early was unusual, at least in the industry. And you said that that was a hypothesis that you should have design in earlier. How did you test the hypothesis? What did you learn? The testing of the hypothesis was saying, do we see better thinking coming from the team, novel thinking, innovative thinking? What I realized is that by having a designer there, there are a couple of things. First of all, a lot of cross-training, meaning everybody in the team now knows about design thinking. And that was super important. So be able to carry a user interview. Every single person from supply chain and science and technology person, they carry an interview. They go in homes and they're the ones conducting the interview. So that, that was wow. great because I've never seen that before. So know enough, you're not the expert, but you don't need to be the expert uh, for that. So that was like mind changing. And, and we talk a lot about that concept of the I versus the T, meaning the, the people within the team, their T's, meaning they have their area of expertise they brought in, but what's important in the T is the breath and in finding the people who want that T. And the designer in the team was able to stretch the T of the other people in the team in a way that is unusual user-centric. So that was fantastic. But ultimately, the other part of design is the doing, being able to prototype things really quickly and be able to have consumer interviews and have something to be seen. The designer helping the team a lot to bring things to life and test test the website. Mockups allow us to learn really early on and kill ideas sooner <laughs> or find nuggets of insights that we wouldn't otherwise with that. So. It's not only approved, now that I'm moving to a different role, a designer's coming with me. <laughs> I don't know what I can do another way. So. Did you say protocept? That's a new term for me. I got some new lingo. So protocept is just like prototype concept mixed together? Protocepts are, I would say, it's in the realm of prototypes, but it is rougher, I guess, even more rough than a prototype. I think what's the magic of design thinking through an artifact, like a protocept, is you find the insight and the need and the driver behind. People are not reacting necessarily to what's in front of them, but what we want to hear is the whys, the perceptions as an artifact, because rarely that thing is the one that makes it to market, but it's a tool for you to learn more about pains, gains, jobs to be done. Cool. It strikes me that most people would probably imagine that innovation in the supplement industry is driven by science and technology and that kind of research. And everything you're talking about is really understanding the customer and the market. 
Yeah, so I think the, the aha actually came from Toby Cohen. He's our chief growth officer who was in the supplier side of the nutraceuticals company. So he actually got insights about the industry from the view of what innovation is looking like. And the aha for him was that nobody was bringing scientific insights and consumer insights at the same time. There are a lot of companies that come from a science perspective. And I say it's beautiful science that solves the needs for five people or have kind of a consumer centric way, but cannot get to the uniqueness in the science and making things better. So we live in the intersection of consumer insights and scientific insights. That's the magic. And so what it changed for me having, you know, a CPG background, a lot of food, a lot of beverage that I've developed in the past was starting with everything at the same time, meaning the scientist is in the room when we're doing ethnographies and we're doing user interviews. And we have nutrition scientists that are fabulous that understand the science, but are not necessarily close to the consumer. So bringing those together have gotten us to come up with novel ways of thinking about solving problems. And that's exciting because building that bridge and, and the amount that I've learned in the four years here about science is amazing. And as a known scientific person, no scientific background, I'm a business person all the way, to be helping to bring the gift of health to life to people in a true way, not just in a marketing positioning way, is amazing. It feels really amazing. It's a team unification. And that's what really you know, gets me to be energized about what we do. Can you share an example of a time when having the scientist in the room while doing the consumer research led to a breakthrough? Yes, a great example is, is in the area of sleep. So sleep is a key area of focus for us. And we hear over and over again from people who suffer from bad sleep that, you know, nothing works every day. I try one thing, I try the other thing, open my cupboard, I have special pillows and sound machines and supplements and and lighting and, you know, but nothing seems to work over time. And so there's a high degree of frustration, a high degree of hopelessness and confusion. So we're sitting to that. I'm like, you know, just why? The science, if you look in melatonin as being like the number one supplement used for sleep, the science is solid. And the scientist in the room said, hey, the reason that you don't fall asleep tonight is not the same that you didn't fall asleep last night. Like, like, hold on, like, why? It's like, so there's not a one solution. There are different reasons for it. So that was the aha, I'm like, okay, what are the reasons, right? So it got us to do that. And that's how we discovered actually 12 consumer jobs around sleep. Some is because your mind is racing. You can't calm your mind, right? So that's a whole different thing. Some, it's actually that you're waking up in the middle of the night. You have no problem falling asleep, but you're waking up in the middle of the night. Um, so it started kind of opening up a lot of opportunities for us to think about sleep differently and create a portfolio around it, but one that personalization makes sense. So for us, the innovation there is like how to help consumers realize that and navigate an industry or solutions outside of the industry. A large portion of our audience comes from some expertise in how agile software development teams work and kind of traditional agile techniques. And I'm curious for those listeners, if they were to walk into your team room, now that we're kind of back in person, what would look different about how you use an Agile approach from what kind of a standard Agile approach is like? Yeah, I think they would have heart palpitations. <laughs> Do you have supplements for that? <laughs> exactly. It is very different. So we had to adapt not only to being CPG, not only because it's innovation, we're not like the delivery of software every week, 
you know, to our needs, to our head counts, the number of people we have and the job to be done, right? And so what is gonna look similar is the fact that we're structured in Scrum, in Scrum teams, that we have the ceremonies, we have daily stand-ups, we have reviews, planning, reviews, retrospectives, that looks the same. We have a product backlog and we have a sprint backlog. Great, you know, until now, great. We also have a working agreement for the team, awesome. We have stakeholders, great. Then that's where things get really muddy. <laughs> <laughs> so we learned that we needed the product owners to sit within the delivery team. So right now that person wears multiple hats on the product owners. And why did we need to do that? First of all, the unique needs of the team. So to have a product owner that is going across, it was diluted because they're not as close to the work and the fact that things change really quickly. So we saw the benefits of actually having someone sitting there and that's like understands what's happening there to be able to have great backlogs and develop great backlogs. We also saw that we could not have a flat organization. It came to a time that I had like 15 direct reports or 14 direct reports. And you know, you might say, okay, in a self-managing organization, you can manage. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It could manage a lot more people reporting to me than normal. Then in a regular organization, they usually have a maximum of five. And I right now had eight and it's fine. But there are certain things about coaching and mentoring that you're just not able, there are not enough hours in the day to be able to do that. So within the delivery team, we have reporting lines. We have seen the benefits that actually the people who are into their development, they feel like their manager is, is closer and they can set the direction in a faster way. So I would say that that's the biggest thing. We still have a scrum master that goes across the pods I would say that's the biggest difference. So you have, depending on the timing, two or three different teams that are working on innovation and they focus on different parts of it and the Scrum Master spans all of those teams. Yes. Okay, got it. Yeah, so rather than having the Scrum of Scrums, we have the POs that get together with the Scrum Master to discuss because there's some collaboration across the pods. And I would say that that's been the, the biggest learning has been when the teams were too close, it was hard to understand what team you belong to. And it's something that we really discussed that you need to be clear on what team you belong to. So then we created more separation, which helped from an autonomy perspective. But then I think we realized in the last 12 months that it was too siloed, that we need to bring somehow a little bit to have more cross-pollination. We realized that by the external stakeholders. So people we work with, they're like, why does this team or this pod asked me for this information this way and the other one's asking for the same information but in a different way. Now I'm sitting here trying to do, I have two templates, I have two timelines, like it's confusing, right? So we need to have some synergies where it makes sense. Or if there are differences, then we're more able to communicate what the differences are versus just being like, mm, that's how I do it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. How have you grown as a leader over the years? Yeah, a lot. Um, Next question. Not <laughs> yeah, like, so there are a lot of things that happened in my life prior to coming to here that are good context about who I am and, and how I came here. When working with entrepreneurs, it came up point in my life that I started realizing that there, was, there were people, especially one entrepreneur, her name is Claudia Hillmeyer, that led her team very differently. She absolutely believes in abundance. She believes in giving. She believes in development of her team as humans. And observing that and being part of that, and to be honest, failing some of that, some hard conversations and candid conversations that she had with me about how I was acting versus what she expected, made me realize that, first of all, there are certain things about my corporate, previous corporate life that I was carrying with me that were not serving me. 
And mainly it's believing scarcity. And in a consulting company relationship, right? That, you know, you're paying me for doing, I do, you know, I want to make you happy, but, you know, ultimately is is a consulting relationship. And I started seeing that that was not something that I wanted, that I was proud of, that I really wanted to feel was in it for the purpose, no matter what, and there are good days and bad days, but ultimately that we're in this together. She also exposed me to mindfulness, and I really got deep into that and observing myself my beliefs or traumas that I was carrying that were not serving me. And so I came to a point that I really needed to ground myself in who I am and what's my purpose in life. And I went through a time that I studied personal branding, but personal branding is part of discovering, oh, really, what are your beliefs? What are your fundamental values? I read a book that she gave to me, The Big Leap, and learn about this idea of zone of genius and what's really your genius and started kind of discovering, you know, what really it drove me. At the same time, it was when my youngest son was diagnosed with autism. And my life, the life that I thought I was going to have, it, it was, everything was questioned. It was questioned about how I feel. It's not about how I feel. It's about, you know, being here for him and being here uh, in the present, not five years from now, the day I want to become a CEO and, and all that. It brought me back. So there are a lot of things about believing in abundance, believing in the power in the now, and really ground yourself on who you are. So when this opportunity came at Pharmavite, my biggest thing, and I talked about the hypothesis of bringing a designer, but the true, true hypothesis, my view is I want to see if I can't build a team in an organization that can achieve success by really being good, focus on the good and the people. And can we focus on not clearing the mind, not acting from a reactive state, and really focus on the purpose that we have in a very expensive and, and creative way. And so I came in with that feeling, and that was, the I would say, the magic of my life that I was discovering and, and seeing it unfold. When I look back now, I'm still very much grounded in that concept. But what I've learned is how... In business, personal and human development is at the core of everything. So I've done a lot more coaching, mentoring, and focus on individual development than I thought I was going to have. So I find great joy in the transformations that I have experienced, but that I have seen within people in the team. Life-changing life-changing things, life-changing insights. And this is it's just incredible. It doesn't happen with everybody, but being part of that in which you share your vulnerabilities, right? Because that's the part of me. And, and the biggest thing I found is, is that quote from Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everyone else is taken. That's exactly it. And I realize and feel much more comfortable in my own skin through these experiences and trust that I'm gonna use my intentions the best that I can do to be there for the people and be candid. Like radical candor is that something that we discussed that I heard, I, I think the concept from you guys and the different types of listening and I have been able to have really candid and really scary conversations the last four years that I've ever had before. And just knowing the confidence that I can go there is very powerful. What's the next evolution that's starting to emerge for you as a leader? Yeah, I think the challenge that I have in my new role as the president of a business unit is, you know, it's a big jump. You are acting in the now and in the future. So it's that balance for the business results to be there. When faced with a challenge 
when am I going to be able to let go of control and trust that the organization is going to find a way to deal with that challenge? So that is the question. I'm going to a new organization and I'm meeting people at the stage in my leadership circle. My reactive tendency is to drive. And so I do want to make sure that as I go into a new organization, that I'm still keeping line with how I want it to be and not and I just fall back into the reactive tendency. So that's really top of mind for me. But at the same time, it's different from working in an innovation organization in which you do have time. Meaning you are speeding, but you can pivot and can manage time to one that you have to make a decision. And especially in the space of direct to consumer business that we have, you know, your sales are hitting every hour. You can track how you're doing. So it's very in the now and very immediate. And so how am I going to learn and adjust to that scenario? So that's what's top of mind for me. You mentioned the leadership circle and not wanting to go back into the reactive. I noticed that if I just try to avoid doing a thing, I'm less successful at it than if I try to move towards a different thing. And so I'm wondering if it could be through the lens of the creative half of the leadership circle. It could be something else. There's almost a scarcity of don't do this, don't do this. What's the abundance? What are you trying to lean into that naturally causes you to not go to that driven reactive stage? I think it's ultimately getting to know the people and do something really scary sometimes, which is you know, not be too close to things. Let the people who are closest to it make the decisions and setting the purpose of where we're going to go. So that's my vision and that's what I learned that works for me and works, it feels good. But when you're learning, when you're getting up to speed where everything is new, I need to be a little bit close because I need to learn to understand the business, but I don't want to be too close. That gives the impression that I'm really on your neck. Mm you're still the expert. So that's something that it's in my mind. It's interesting because it's very important to vocalize on your belief in abundance when you are in that situation. There is work to go around and there's growth opportunity for every single person. What I'm trying to do is to understand, first of all, what are the growth opportunities that you want what your zone of genius is or what are the opportunities and the growth that you want to do that you haven't done yet, but not feel that I'm kind of crowding, I guess. Mm -hmm. Through that lens of the leadership circle, I hear like purposeful and visionary for sure, but then really leaning into caring connection, to mentoring and developing, collaborating, being selfless and all of that, like the relationship side of it, the more human side of it is the path through and purposeful and visionary you have no problem with. In a transition like this, I think we all are at risk of saying, well, just for now, I'll be a little driven because it's a new role and I have to do that in order to be successful instead of relying on kind of the newer muscles we've created around, I don't have to be that way to be successful. This human-centric approach works, but you, it just takes longer because you have to develop relationships. Until you have those relationships, it's not gonna be that effective. So yeah. how do you bridge that gap over time, right? And, and there is some expectation that people have that you're gonna come in day one and you're gonna have a vision for the business, mm -hmm. that you're gonna have an org chart to explain what the transformation is. And I need to know at the core of me that I will get to that. We are gonna get to that together, not now. Now it's the time for us to get to know each other <laughs> and for me to understand who you are and, and the culture. How do you guys relate? How do you make decisions? What do you value? Because that's so core. I need to make sure that I'm not coming with, hey, I just have a really successful four years. I know exactly how it's supposed to be done because I, I don't. And so I do talk in you know broad terms. We're here to drive growth. But... I had success in the last four years in transformation. I'm not there to transform. The business is doing great. I'm here to accelerate growth. So it's a different goal. And I find that that is clarifying to people, right? That there's not a major kind of reshuffle that is going to happen that they just want to be aware of. It's finding the time and finding the grace to myself 
on knowing that yes, there are times that people are gonna feel uncomfortable and I don't want them to feel uncomfortable. But if I try to fill in the void and just saying something, I might be getting ahead of myself. So like, what's that balance, right? I'm just finding that there are certain things about me that I feel really strongly about to be able to build that connection. So I will bring some of that level of safety differently, not by giving you a vision in an org chart, is by giving you the confidence that you're part of this. You're part of what this future is going to be like. It's I don't have everything figured out. Every day in, in a new role is dealing again with your own vulnerability and your own imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know what? Maybe I should know. Like, no, I don't. You know, it's that conflict and the voice, you know, this is not this is not helping right now. I'm just gonna be me. Right back to the mindfulness practice, right? <laughs> I'm gonna be me. That's the best that I have. <laughs> When you think about your own kids, that generation, our kids, when they get into the workforce, say a generation from now, what do you hope work looks like for them? Human. And what I mean by that is kind, that it leverages diversity in every single way to make a difference in the world. And I am really blown away, right? So I have a third grader who's in the public school system, LAUSD, and comes with concepts that I have never thought about when I was at that age. The meaning of things. When you go to work, what does it mean to you? I get those questions when a nine-year-old. What does it mean? Does it mean you don't value me? You're valuing that more? And like having those conversations about what score of who you are, what drives me, you know, what I believe and what does she believe and so forth. I do have a lot of, a lot of hope of having those conversations and, and having conversations about mental health and mental wellness. That's transformative. I do think that that is one of the gifts that we learned in the last couple of years. First of all, to recognize when you're not well and be able to, to talk about it. But I was talking to my brother the other day, and he is one of the companies that have unlimited PTO. And the issue is that people don't take PTO. Yeah. And so that was the realization. So the company declares holidays. <laughs> so today, tomorrow is going to be a holiday. Everybody's out. And we're trying to figure out why there's so much of that burnout and, and so much is happening. And if you're led by people who are not well, they're suffering, they are in the reactive state, what would you expect from organizations? What would you expect? So unfortunately, I think, you know, we're not yet looking back to see all the beauty that is going to come out of this period of us having more awareness or experiencing anxiety, uh, depression. But I do see that that's a conversation that's happening at schools. You know, how are you feeling? You know, being able to, to use words or emojis <laughs> to talk about your feelings. So I do hope that when they come to the workforce, that it's one that's much more in touch with who you are and how you're feeling and the well-being so that you can be your best self so that you can make a difference in the world. You were promoted to be a president of a business unit. Congratulations, we're so happy for you. And a lot of us have gone through these transitions in our career where we're promoted or we move into a different role. And I'm curious how you thought about the transition and what have you done, like tactically, what have you done as you got into the role when it was announced? What have you done in the first day, the first week? Yeah, the beginning of it was literally like, is this really happening? So this role did come from a bold declaration <laughs> to my boss on like, I really want it and I want you to take a chance on me. And th this is scary, but I've been looking for the butterflies in the stomach and through the conversation, he was positive about it. Not only that, got a lot of people behind supportive of it. So I think the first feeling from me it was like, oh my God, this is actually happening. And went through a lot of emotions and feelings about that, right? A feeling of 
hold on, but I really love what I have right now. Am I is it really, really, really the right time? And how is it going to be? That was like the moment. And then, and then you start a job, right? Like you start a job before anybody knows about the job because you start figuring out what are all of the other shifts that are going to happen in the organization. How are you making sure that communication is mindful and respectful in the timeline of it and how we're going to operate? So you jump right in. So I do think that now when I'm reading a lot of books about it, it has a lot of like the, the preparation, the before. And I wish I had read those books right in that moment when it was starting like, is this really happening? So I do feel like lessons learned, you know, like that was already the time to be studying those things and thinking about those things because it's not the first hundred days, it's the minus time that you have from the day of the announcement. You know, and I had a conversation with you guys prior to this. And I think that the insight that I got from that is you had the time to get used to that idea. People are going to have the feelings that you had in that first day, which is this is really happening. So make sure that you're not like jumping in and saying kind of, oh, this is me and this is all about me. That's what you should know about me when it's not about me. I'm just one part of the transition. There are a lot of other transitions that are going to happen. So as I was going now, it's like, how do you make sure, especially in this condition, because the announcement is that the original founders of this business are leaving at some point. You know, it's great. I have an overlap, a great overlap. But with that, be, you know, really mindful and respectful of that moment of the news that they're leaving and then therefore I'm coming in. So I do think that I was so mindful that perhaps I didn't share thoughts that I should have shared. And so I left there feeling a little bit, oh, like, who, who am I, right? Who am I? So I did um, send an email a few days later just saying, okay, this is probably what you're curious about who I am. The team uses Slack. I posted a photo of me and my family. So I think it is important. It's like that striking the balance. I don't know what the right balance, but you know, ultimately you're a human being and people want to know who you are. And then the first week I was still like one leg here, one leg there, because now the team that I was leaving knew I was leaving. So I still had transitions to do. And that's super uncomfortable when you feel like you're nowhere. You're not, when you're transitioning within a job that's an internal job, right? If you come in to a new company, that's not the case. But you want to make sure that the people who you're leaving feel respected and taken care of, right? Like right now, it's like, hey, I'm ready to go, you know? So it's that mixed feeling. The leaders within the organization, we came together and again, leverage the tools you know, put a mural board together and did a lot of the things that I learned a lot from you guys about how to facilitate a session. You know, what is the transition? My eyes are the transitioning. This is what's transitioning. What else is transitioning that I'm not seeing? There were stickies that were added of other transitions in the business that, you know, I'm like, that's a great point, right? How are you feeling about it? How is the team feeling? And how do we, you know, let's talk about those emotions and what do people need to progress, right? Like, let's discuss. So they provided ideas on certain things that I highlighted the next time I saw the team. And then my 30, 60, 90 days, what do you guys see? What, what do you want to see? So I can post check where they are. And then we had a highest risk hypothesis exercise. <laughs> <laughs> and so that gave me their view. And then also set expectations. Expectations is the name of the game. That's what you're expecting from me. This is what you can expect from me. These are the things I can accomplish, but those things I'm going to push out. So like negotiate on expectations, checking on expectations. I thought that was the most valuable thing. And again, it's really core to me. It's not only just go down, lay out what my 90 days plan is going to be allowed, but really build that together. What's your favorite mistake you've made in the new role? The mistake is there are people who are ready for candor, but it's not everybody yet. So I do think that I have to make sure that I prime a little bit to not get knee-jerk reactions to really direct and candid conversation. 
not everybody is ready for it. I think I got a couple of reactions and I am like immediately like, like really, that's not good. <laughs> you know, I really value that person so much that that person can bring to the table. It's really being more mindful. I would say that speed of trust, right? The, yeah. the concept of speed of trust. Mm -hmm. I assume perhaps that we are at a higher level because my intentions are that I see opportunity, but if I don't establish that, I, it can sound as criticism as the person who just want to shake things up mm -hmm. really, really quickly. I feel bad about that. And I've sensed right away, and you can do what you can to recognize the body language that you get and want to hear more. But again, you're there, you kind of come back from minus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I minus state, right? <laughs> And I wish that was not the case, because I wouldn't want to have that feeling if I was in that spot. I hear how seriously you take what you mentioned you want, kindness, and taking care of people, and making sure that people are well. And I know that that takes effort, and it's hard. Why is it worth it to you? I want to be a better person. I want to make people around me better people, too. And ultimately, it's my driven for results and I like to see our market leadership and all of that, you know, excited about that. But that's not something that happens every day. There needs to be something else that motivates and keeps you going. And I grew up feeling that there was something that needed to be fixed about my presence. I, I grew up in a situation that like I was more driven than people around, right? I was more ambitious than people around me. You know, I grew up in Sao Paulo in a neighborhood outside of it. In the family of entrepreneurs, we struggled. They gave everything they could for our education. Uh, but, you know, the thoughts of living in a different country, the thoughts of, you know, my dream growing up was I want to be an international executive that I get to go on planes and see the world and you know see different cultures is like you know what what then what world are you in it's like so out of so sometimes I felt that was it was good but sometimes it's like I'm just out of touch right like I'm out of touch with people I'm not grateful and appreciative for what I have because I always want the next thing so I grew up thinking about that and kind of having an arrogance to want something that was outside of reach. So I'm grateful for the support, but you know, that was my journey. That was my journey. So I think coming with that and coming to the realization that it's not a presence that a lot of people want around, that I wanna make sure that my presence is positive, that the experience of talking to me is positive, that enriches all of us. And again, going back to this entrepreneur that I said, her presence, it was like, it's magnetic. I wanna be like that. So it was something that, it was a different way of seeing the world. So for me, the experience of this person who was talking is important to me because you know that's how we're gonna grow together and you know make the world a better place. <laughs> Well, we certainly feel that way whenever we interact with you. We the same, the same. I couldn't get enough of <laughs> talking to you guys. We, uh, we see the difference you make on your team. So thank you for what you've done for your teams and for what you're going to do in the new role and just for you being you. We, we love your presence. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Same. And I am forever grateful for that Google, like, thank you for spending some money on, on Google search <laughs> or that your, your training went up there so I could find, I could have found a lot of other trainers and they knock my door now to want to talk about Agile. But you guys, your presence and your knowledge and your generosity in always sharing and being there and challenging me and kicking my behind when needed, really believing in me. You guys are never going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of full circle now that you're back to San Diego because that's where we had that first class. Oh my gosh, so the day of the announcement, I wasn't planning everything, so I was like, don't have a hotel. Like the day before, I need a hotel. So someone here, a friend of mine, just, I'm like, any hotel that's close by, I'm fine. 
So I didn't even know the name of the hotel. So here I am after all this announcement, I'm driving to the hotel. Like, okay, I, I'm familiar with San Diego, but not super familiar. And then I pull up in the parking lot. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the very hotel where I met Peter for the training. <laughs> I'm like, the I courtyard on Hotel Circle. Courtyard, exactly. <laughs> I know that hotel. And I like, I pause in the moment of like, wow, I could have never imagined when I went into the training where I would be in four years and just like so grateful but like walking in it was like oh my god sometimes you have those like what <laughs> so, cool. so that was that was super cool awesome. anyway thanks vivian if you enjoyed this episode and want more content like this the best thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast platform we'd also love it if you shared the podcast with friends family and coworkers who you think might benefit from learning more about how to make work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. If you want help humanizing your work, you can find out more about our products and services at humanizingwork.com. We spend so much of our lives working, so let's make that investment meaningful for us and for all the people connected to it. Mm -hmm.